Lie close, Laura said, pricking up her golden head. We must not look at goblin men. We must not buy their fruits. Who knows upon what soil they fed their hungry, thirsty roots? Come by, called the goblins, hobbling down the glen. Oh, cried Lizzie, Laura, Laura, you should not peep at goblin men. Lizzie covered up her eyes, covered close, lest they should look. Laura reared her glossy head and whispered like the restless brook. Look, Lizzie, look, Lizzie, down the glen, tramp little men. Curious Laura chose to linger, wondering at each merchant man. One had a cat's face, one whisked a tail, one tramped at a rat's pace, one crawled like a snail. One like a wombat prowled obtuse and furry, one like a rattle tumbled hurry-scurry. She heard voice like the voice of doves, cooing all together. They sounded kind and full of loves in the pleasant weather. Goblin Market by Christina Rossetti. Under the general title of Coblenau, I class the fairies which haunt the mines, quarries, and underground regions of Wales, corresponding to the Kabbalistic gnomes. The word coblin has the double meaning of knocker or a thumper and sprite or fiend, and may it not be the original of goblin? It is applied by Welsh miners to pygmy fairies which dwell in the mines and point out by a peculiar knocking or rapping rich veins of ore. The faith is extended in some parts so as to cover the indication of subterranean treasures generally in caves and secret places of the mountains. The Koblenau are described as being about half a yard in height and very ugly to look upon, but extremely good-natured and warm friends of the miner. The counterparts of the Koblenau are found in most mining countries. In Germany, the Wichtlein, little whites, are little old long-bearded men, about three-quarters of an L high, which haunt the mines of the southern land. They are not so popular as in Wales, however, as they predict misfortune or death. They announce the doom of a miner by knocking three times distinctly, and when any lesser evil is about to befall him, they are heard digging, pounding, and imitating other kinds of work. In Germany also, the kobolds are rather troublesome than otherwise to the miners, taking pleasure in frustrating their objects and rendering their toil unfruitful. Sometimes they are downright malignant, especially if neglected or insulted, but sometimes also they are indulgent to individuals whom they take under their protection. British Goblins by Wirt Sykes, 1880. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. Hello and welcome to a very special bonus episode of the Inklings Variety Hour. This summer, as you know, we've been covering The Princess and the Goblin by George MacDonald. And on this very special episode of the Inklings Variety Hour, we'll be talking about the history of the term goblin. And related to this, how goblins have been portrayed in literature and folklore before, during, and since 
George McDonald's time. I've invited linguist Cora Burton, who was with us for Smith of Wooden Major, back on the show. Cora is a student affairs professional with the Moorhead Honors College at the University of Georgia. While at UGA, she completed a master's in historical linguistics and wrote her thesis about the Germanic development of fairy language. She loves immersing herself in the fairy otherworld whenever she gets the chance, and is also currently a staff writer for ZeldaDungeon.net where she writes news, debate, and editorial pieces for fans of the video game series The Legend of Zelda. That is awesome. Uh, how are you doing, Cora? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So what is Zelda.net? Yeah, so ZeldaDungeon.net. I write little fan news articles, daily debate stuff. We're always kind of low humming as far as what's coming next. So it's, it's really exciting to be part of it, and it's a volunteer, so I do it for the fun of it. That is awesome. That's, that's also why I do this podcast. Are there goblins in The Legend of Zelda? Yeah, they're called Bokoblins, which is really interesting in terms of sound symbolism, as we'll discuss later today with the actual like goblin terminology that we're going to discuss. Very cool. So I wanted to have Cora on, listeners, just to have this episode about the word goblin and what was going on with goblins in the 19th century and kind of what things were like goblins before the word goblin became popular, what things are like goblins now since The Princess and the goblin and tolkien you know at least his goblins and the hobbits seem rather related to mcdonald's goblins so yeah this should be a really fun episode stick around i think you'll enjoy it First thing I want to ask you, Cora, why discuss the linguistics of the term goblin? Why is it important to have a philologist or an etymologist or a linguist around when we discuss the origins of mythical creatures such as goblins? Readers of Tolkien's On Fairy Stories might recall that Tolkien had a bit of a bone to pick with a guy by the name of F. Max Mueller, who wrote a two-part volume text called Science of Language, 1890. I bring this up because their disagreement has to do with the very relationship between mythology and language. When Mueller wrote on this topic, he thought that mythology is some ill-gotten effect or a disease brought on by the way language works. So mythology is a disease of language. And he insisted that language is made up of little root germs that signify neither more nor less than exactly what they mean. So naturally, with the passage of time, this original meaning is lost and remade to the point that whatever the original word and meaning was, now the word takes on a more substantial existence. In other words, it makes myth something real in the minds of users of the word that don't remember the original meaning. So that's where mythology comes from, according to Mueller. So mythology, basically, people believe things that are outlandish and weird because they forget the original meanings of words that have kind of been used or recorded or remembered for a long time. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's pretty much it. And Tolkien and others around his time rejected this theory. Tolkien writes in On Fairy Stories that the idea that mythology is a disease of language can be, and this is a quote, abandoned without regret. <laughs> 
But what he writes here is this. Mythology is not a disease at all, though it may, like all human things, become diseased. It would be more near the truth to say that languages, especially modern European languages, are a disease of mythology. We know that Tolkien, I mean, he's an expert in European languages. Another inkling, Owen Barfield, in his poetic diction, takes this subject up and turns Mueller's old theory around. So instead of looking at words as the origin of decayed mythological concepts, he looks at it as the product of ages of intellectual abstraction. So here we see his idea of the theory of primal unity of meaning, where a prehistoric complex unified idea, something that we don't have in writing, it's very much pre-writing, has broken down over time so that more abstract concepts are better communicated. So the thought here is that language has always been further dividing and crystallizing with myth, language, and perception than the way we look at things, the way we interpret them in our minds, and the way we talk about them as pretty much being inseparable. Okay, awesome. So I'm going to bring up Goblin as kind of a test case for these, and you tell me where I'm lying on the Max Mueller versus Tolkien and Barfield sort of spectrum. Because my own theory, especially of why it's important to have a linguist for this, is that goblin tends to be a word that doesn't necessarily correspond with the precise thing. That we have a lot of these words, I would argue, after Tolkien especially, we have a lot of these words very much associated with like very specific mythological ideas, right? Whether from Tolkien or from Dungeons and Dragons or whatever else, right? And so we can kind of talk about the term goblin, at least in the 20th century and 21st century, as though, yes, we are talking about this particular race of weird little critters, right? But I'd say it's just one of a number of words for mischievous little sprites that were used. Part of why it's good to have a linguist around is to be able to tell us, okay, what were some other words used for these same sorts of sprites? And why goblin? Why have we landed on goblin as the word that we use to refer to this phenomena, right, of weird little people causing trouble? Is that more of a Max Mueller sort of explanation? Is it more Tolkienian, Barfieldian? It sounds to me, initially when I say it, it sounds more Muellerian, right? Uh, it sounds more like maybe what Max Bueller would say, but I, I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, at the outset of it, it definitely sounds like that. For me, thinking about it, you know, I think about the natural ebb and flow that's happening at this intersection of language and mythology that we're talking about here. I mean, the interesting thing that talking about European languages and then the cultural things that come out of those languages is that they all came from essentially the same civilization, the Proto-Indo-European civilization. And so, you think about a central sort of ancestral idea of this goblin, fairy, imp, something that's mischievous, something that's a spirit, and then it divides across these different civilizations. But then you also see it now kind of coming back together in more recent centuries where you're having to kind of choose, well, okay, what term is going to win out as the thing that signifies this kind of sprite versus that kind of sprite? And so that's, I feel like a really good test case for how meaning both sort of sticks together and then divides up over time. back into you know kind of talking some more about this and about is there a particular objective 
actually real thing that this is that these words are corresponding to or is there a particular like dimension of the human mind like thing that we're imagining is happening that that the word goblin specifically corresponds to as opposed to imp right or as opposed to as we'll talk about later pook but uh yeah um, i'm excited to, to talk some more about this let's go on though to the 19th century when McDonald writes The Princess and the Goblin later in the 19th century. There have already been a few works on goblins, and goblin is brought up generally. It seems to be, at least at that point, more or less interchangeable with words like fairy. Keats, when he's writing the poem Plea of the Midsummer Fairies, which is not a very well-known or anthologized uh, work by Keats, writes, uh, These be the pretty genii of the flowers, daintily fed with honey and pure dew, Midsummer's phantoms in her dreaming hours, King Oberon and all his merry crew, the darling puppets of romance's view, fairies and sprites and goblin elves we call them famous for patronage of lovers true so there he takes the term goblin and the term elf right which we're used to kind of opposing to each other post tolkien and they're stuck together right goblin is a synonym for elf here right or at least like like a modifier for for elf goblin elves we call them also british goblins by wirt sykes which was quoted at the top where he's talking about welsh fairies but he calls it british goblins because of course the welsh are the original british and goblins to him is a, i mean he talks about specific types of goblins and we'll get into that pretty soon but yeah it seems to some extent to be interchangeable rudyard kipling uh, and puck of pook's hill puck says to some children that he meets it's some time since i heard that song and they're singing a song about how the how the fairies have gone away but there is no good beating about the bush it's true the people of the hills have all left I saw them come into old England and I saw them go. Giants, trolls, kelpies, brownies, goblins, imps, wood, tree, mound, and water spirits, heath people, hill watchers, treasure guards, good people, little people, peace hogs, leprechauns, light riders, pixies, nixies, gnomes, and the rest. Gone. All gone. I came into England with oak, ash, and thorn, and when oak, ash, and thorn are gone, I shall go to. So, so to a certain extent, like in the 19th century, this seems to be the same type of thing as fairies and imps, or at least it's named alongside of them as like, these are at least the same like kind of genus of peoples, even if the species is like slightly different. But again, because it's not referring to a species that can be directly studied, it's difficult to say in what way the species is different exactly what are your thoughts yeah well i mean the thing that occurs to me looking at these lists of creatures is that in linguistics especially if you do corpus linguistics which is digitization of texts and then you look at the text for patterns you see these collocations of different creatures being provided in the same list and we say that collocations let you know different shades of meaning and when you see those words together you know that there's something about them that the author is pairing them together for so it's just really interesting to see goblins they're situated in between brownies and imps and then you have a semicolon that then goes into wood tree mound and water spirits so you have these sort of differentiations but you also have them all in one list i also wanted to add that quote ends with uh, oak ash and thorn and it's just really interesting because those are also at least two out of the three are letters in the old english alphabet so it's almost talking about like i came into england with the alphabet with language and i'll go out with it i don't know i see that parallel i love that that's really awesome yeah i didn't even that didn't even hit me yeah absolutely 
absolutely. That's super fun. We've got this book on the side of goblins being kind of the same genus as other sort of fairy people, right? British Goblins by Wirt Sykes, who's actually, I don't think an ambassador, but some official with the State Department under Ulysses S. Grant, served in Wales and then hung around Wales and wrote this book about fairies of Wales called British Goblins. He's talking about the puka, which is something we'll talk about too uh, later on. The most familiar form of the puka story is one which I have encountered in several localities, varying so little in its details that each account would be interchangeable with another by the alteration of local names. This form presents a peasant who's returning home from his work or from a fair when he sees a light traveling before him. So think Will-o'-the-Wisp, right? Looking closer, he perceives that it is carried by a dusky little figure holding a lantern or candle at arm's length over its head. He follows it for several miles and suddenly finds himself on the brink of a frightful precipice. From far down below, there rises to his ears the sound of a foaming torrent. At the same moment, the little goblin with the lantern springs across the chasm, alighting on the opposite side, raises the light again high over his head, utters a loud and malicious laugh, blows out his candle, and disappears up the opposite hill, leaving the awestruck peasant to get home as best he can. This kind of mischievous nature, again, of these little people, and here they're called puka, but it's a very similar idea as applied to not the koblenau so much, um, which it's really interesting because MacDonald calls them cobs, which could refer to kobolds, but more probably refers to koblenau because there's a lot of mining going on in Wales, right? And 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 Curdie is a miner. He, he describes the Koblenau. Their dress is a grotesque imitation of the miner's garb, and they carry tiny hammers, picks, and lamps. They work busily, loading ore in buckets, flitting about the shafts, turning tiny windlasses, and pounding away like madmen, but really accomplishing nothing whatever. They have been known to throw stones at the miners when enraged at being lightly spoken of, but the stones are harmless. Nevertheless, all miners of a proper spirit refrain from provoking them because their presence brings good luck. And then it goes on to talk about how the German version of these little men working in the mountains and kind of bothering miners are more malicious, right? And I actually ran across an article that suggests that MacDonald is, while he's taking the word cob from the Welsh miners and kind of Frenchifying it into goblin, what he's really borrowing in terms of spirit is the spirit of the kind of German little mischievous little sprites, right? Um, um, where they uh, um, play tricks on the miners and are, and are just kind of, you know, honestly kind of boilerplate fairy. Fairies generally do this sort of thing, right? But it's funny that, you know, you have these same sorts of stories about little people playing tricks on humans. Uh, you, you have them about elves as well. And yet in our sort of post- Tolkienian world, elves are thought of as these high, noble people, right? And goblins are thought of these malicious, evil creatures, right? And and both essentially are kind of is inscrutable from a human point of view, right? Um, and both play tricks in like kind of the original folk tales. He comments on the word goblin itself, which is French. This ludicrous fairy talking about the Welsh Bobach or Bubach, who throws people up in the air. This ludicrous fairy is in France represented by the goblin 
Gobelon, mothers threaten children with him, but basically the, the goblin will eat you. The goblin will take you away, they say in, in French. In the English hobgoblin, we have a word apparently derived from the Welsh ha, hob to hop and coblin, a goblin which presents a hopping goblin to the mind and suggests the puka with which the bubach is also confused in the popular fancy at times, but should mean in English simply the goblin of the hob or the household fairy because the hob is the side of the fireplace. So that's where hobgoblin comes from. It's like a household goblin. Although it's also just fun to say, and I imagine that's part of the reason that the words survived. Yeah. Any thoughts on that, Cora, or, or anything you wanted to add? Yeah, I mean, the um, sound symbolism is definitely something that keeps words around. You know, if it sounds and feels nice in the mouth, you know, you keep it around. But it's just interesting seeing the development of ideas like this in this time period and then seeing, you know, more research on it later on, seeing how these ideas have changed. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so before... McDonald's, The Princess and the Goblin, you have Christina Rossetti's Goblin Market, which I also read at the top. And my working theory right now is that that put goblins specifically kind of over the top as these are malicious, evil sort of sprites or elves or fairies or, or, or whatever. I have no evidence for that theory. Um, so it may be completely wrong. I'm still trying to look through. I'm not a Victorianist, uh, uh, so I'm still trying to look through articles associating McDonald and Rossetti. But um, Christina Rossetti's Goblin Market basically is about two sisters who every day hear these goblin merchants ask them to buy their fruits. One sister, who's a good sister, resists their temptation, but the other sister, who's the more wayward sister, does not. And when she's eaten their fruits, she gets very sick. The good sister then offers herself as a sacrifice to the goblins and gets the fruit juice kind of all over her. And through that sort of Christ imagery, she's able to, her sister who, who has like the, who's like wasting away and can no longer see the goblins and, and, and just needs some of that delicious goblin fruit juice to cure her through partaking of the juice that's on her sister who's been beaten up is cured and uh, restored that's the basic plot of goblin market it's, it's a very visceral experience <laughs> it's it's strange it's very strange which i guess is part of the point right yeah it's very interesting i love christina rossetti and, and goblin market is just a great fun bizarre poem but that's published in 1862 right so a good eight years before mcdonald publishes the princess and the goblin in which the goblins also figure as definite bad guys, right? They're not just mischievous, like in Rossetti, they are the antagonists, right? And they're the antagonists throughout, and you have to beat the goblins, you know, in, in Goblin Market through self-sacrifice, right? And in McDonald by um, outmaneuvering them, basically, uh, with the help of big old great old grandmother. So yeah, so far, 
What I'm thinking, and feel free to differ me with me on this because I, I don't know for sure, is that Rossetti, and then as this is sort of snowballing towards goblins are evil, uh, McDonald tips goblins toward the definitely malignant. And possibly it's got uh, McDonald's familiarity with Germanic or, or German lore as well that's causing him to view the cobs as, as, as kind of evil. That's picked up by Tolkien. Now we live in a world where goblins are inherently malignant because Tolkien was so influential. So that's my working hypothesis and it could be completely wrong. What do you think, Cora? I mean, I feel like it's a fairly good one, particularly with goblins, just because they're such an actual mixed bag. I did a little bit of research on fairies in um, Victorian art and you might also find some interesting patterns there in terms of how artists started to sort of divide the grotesque in fairy from the beautiful because mm, um, yeah. it seems like there's definitely a shifting happening during the Victorian period in art where you have these different fairy parties and these different like fairy processions with kings and queens and that very much seems to be divided between the pale and fair the kind of elf-like honestly that become more like these are fairies versus the they're still kind of whimsical but there's definitely a meanness about the visages and they look much more goblin-like so i wonder too you know how different art forms also affected this change i'm in full sympathy with tolkien's view of fairy it's this very high beautiful thing i know that's He's, he's trying to correct something where fairies are in McDonald too, just kind of a little too precious, like little butterfly people. But like you're saying, it's very much a mixed bag, pre-Victorian. some of our other names before the word goblin comes into prominence? So going back to the Old English period, as you mentioned before, goblin has a French origin. Usually in that situation, something gets displaced. In this case, Old English had the term puka from the Germanic family of words denoting apparitions, ghosts, devils, and of course spooks. And that's where we get the word spook is from this family of terms surrounding puka. Uh, We get it more or less from borrowing directly from German, but that's where spook comes from. Not always bad, but it definitely gives you a goblin vibe. That's really cool about the word spooks. I hadn't even made that connection between puck and puka and spook. That's really cool. Yeah, that's another thing is that Shakespeare's puck also comes from this term. Gentles, do not reprehend. If you pardon, we will mend. And as I am an honest puck, if we have unearned luck, now to escape the serpent's tongue, we will make amends ere long, else the puck a liar call. So good night unto you all. Give me your hands if we be friends. And Robin shall restore amends. Mm-hmm. Any others that you ran across that, that are commonly used before before goblin for the sort of thing that we mean when we say goblin? I also looked into kobold, so K-O-B-O-L-D. And at first glance, I mean, this sounds very much like goblin. You'd almost wonder if it were a doublet. And a doublet 
is when English or any other modern language gets a word twice from somewhere. So they're both borrowings. For instance, Charles and Charlotte are both borrowings from French, but they were borrowed at different times when the CH sound made different actual noises. <laughs> and that's why they sound different. So then kobold would be the German, goblin would be the French, and we would have adopted kobold back into our language, uh, even though they both have like a common ancestor. Is that what you're saying? That's what I originally suspected. So that's how it would have worked. And the reason why I suspected this is because goblin, because it comes from French, it comes from Latin. And if it comes from Latin, then a lot of the time it comes from Greek. So we get this all the way down from Greek kobolos, which seems to either be a term for a rogue or a spirit summoned by a rogue, which I thought was even more interesting. And we get goblin during the Middle English period from Old French, as you said. So while the Latinization of Greek kobolos eventually seems to become some kind of post-classical Latin kobolos, apparently kobold, K-O-B-O-L-D, is just strictly Germanic, borrowed over into English from German with no very clear original origin in terms of Indo-European. So it almost actually kind of reminds me of the term you know, goblin itself in, in terms of what it refers to. Yeah. Um, we know where goblin comes from, but the goblins themselves, we're not sure what's going on there. And it's kind of the same deal with kobold. If the idea that you know this all comes from Kobalus, if that is true, that's that's remarkably consistent, right? It still means the same sort of thing that it meant way back when it was a Greek term, um, unless, of course, I mean, is there any chance that we're that we've gotten around Latin influence at all, and and maybe this is just a Proto-Indo-European word that came down through some other means, or or is it pretty definitely because we've got you know Welsh obviously has a word that's very Cobb-like, right? Koblenau. Is it possible that it's not Greek or is the OED like just pretty definite? Like this is from the Greek. So when it comes to goblin, we're pretty sure. When it comes to kobold, actually the OED just is like, eh, it came from somewhere. And yeah. sometimes that's because we either really don't quite know where in the classical world it might have come from that it got borrowed into German or sometimes Indo-European peoples interacted with other kinds of people that weren't Indo-European. And so we get borrowings from those languages without really knowing where they came from. And that happens sometimes too. There's also the shuke or the shuk, which is another kind of malevolent spirit that you had that, that goes back all the way to Old English. We've got the word sprite, right? Which is, I would imagine, derived from spiritus originally, right? So uh, another way to say spirit for also a lot of these, the, the implication is, as with Grendel, right, who is both physical and a spirit, a lot of these kind of walk this line between being actually physical and being invisible, right, or intangible. But yeah, a lot of these words are our borrowings from classical, classical words, which, which is interesting. And then, of course, we cannot help but be influenced by Midsummer Night's Dream, which also kind of 
demonstrates this, like at once a similarity between these different types of spirits, right? So you have these classical figures like Titania, uh, you have these German figures like Oberon, the King of the Fairies, and then you have like local English sprites, right? Like Robin Goodfellow, aka Puck. There's an interesting conflation going on, but also distinction, right? Higher born spirits are the foreign ones, right? The ones who, who sort of speak in verse and have, have a little more, I mean, Titania Titania kind of gets embarrassed a little bit in uh, in Midsummer Night's Dream, right? But there's a reason she can be embarrassed because she's high class in the first place, right? Versus Robin Goodfellow is kind of like the jester, and he's the local English spirit, right? It's it's also interesting the the kind of ob uh, word, right? Robin Goodfellow, Rob, Gob, Cobb, Bob, Hob, Knob, right? A lot of times. Uh, this is sounding to our ear like something very bouncy, mischievous. I, I wonder if sometimes just the way that words sound doesn't cause us to think of certain things, right? Absolutely. As you were saying those words out loud, I was just thinking, actually, the reason why it sounds all stumpy and round is because it's round when it's in our mouths. <laughs> We've got a onset vowel ending in a soft stop. It's no wonder that it kind of sounds bouncy almost. Ob. And then also it kind of comes across as this bumbling sort of non-exacting nature, maybe even in the way that goblins are thought to emulate humans, but also have their own natures that are lesser in some way. So I just thought that that was an interesting connection between all of these different sounds. Yeah. And I love the, all the stories in the British goblins about, oh, they have their little pickaxes and their little carts and they try to be like miners, but they're not very good at it. You know, not just in mines, but in houses as well, right? Uh, you have these these kind of house spirits, right? And goblin is one of a number of different words uh, that's used to refer to these house sprites or house spirits or house gnomes or whatever. And one of one of the things I, I came across was was the word hobgoblin as, and I always thought of hobgoblin as like, oh, they're like goblins, but bigger because it's a longer word, right? And therefore they must be like really big goblins. Uh, but it sounds like it's actually potentially diminutive because they're the house goblins, right? Other than the goblins that are wild. But yeah, what did you come across when you were looking around for Hobgoblin? So what I found in the OED and a couple of other sources is that, and I didn't even actually believe this at first because it seemed so wild, but it seems that Hob is a medieval diminutive of Rob. Mm -hmm. Um like Robin Goodfellow. And so looking into this a little bit further, it seems like substitutions of H for R in names is kind of common, like substituting Hodge oh, so for cool. Roger or Hick for Richard, which I had not heard before, but I'd take their word for it. And since we know that Robin Goodfellow is a name for like, you know, a fairy, a sprite, an elf, and even later on, kind of like a devilish figure, medieval. I was watching the first parts of the Caribbean movie the other night and a character said, oh, we'll send them down to see old Hob. That means we're going to send them down to the devil. <laughs> yeah. So Hobgoblin pretty much then means fairy goblin, elf goblin, or if you want to even take it further, goblin, goblin, mega goblin. <laughs> Hobgoblin, it's just kind of repeating some of the sounds. So it's like, you know, more gobliny. And there's definitely a duplication there, but it's in the actual terminology behind it, not just the sound. So I thought that that was super cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, that's really neat. I love that. And I love Hob as being 
yeah another way of saying rob robin robin goodfellow that's super cool yeah the reason i was originally thinking like oh we just kind of stuttered the first syllable right is that a lot of times g like goblin uh, the only difference between g and k is that you you voice the g sound and you don't voice the k sound right and then it's only a little tiny step from the k to the h so I was just thinking, oh, it must have somehow metamorphosed over time and, and gobgoblin became cobgoblin became hobgoblin. But yeah, I, I love the idea of it actually being Robin Goodfellow goblin or even a, a synonym for the devil. And that points to one of the really interesting things about these critters and, and elves and fairies really throughout their existence, right? As, as they've kind of walked this line between like alternate pagan deity and demonic spirit, right? And then more or less harmless other type of person that we don't know much about and that our lives don't touch on much. It definitely kind of will verge into all three of those categories, right? So it's it's, it's just interesting. And, and, and not just goblins, but all of the sprites and fairies and, and things like that. It's, you know, you'll, you'll have the more sort of austere sects of Christianity basically saying it's all the devil's work. Uh, and then you'll have other people who are like, oh no, I hung out with the fairies once. And, uh, you know, they asked for a holy communion and, you know, who was I to turn, you know, so, so it's just really, uh, really interesting. All right, we have this term goblin that, you know, that can mean a number of different things. And it's increasingly weighted towards sort of negative after Rossetti and McDonald got a hold of it. And perhaps you could even argue that they're drawing on this sort of older Christian narrative of like goblins bad. And, and certainly Rossetti's description of the goblins as like sort of mixed beasts very much fits with portrayals of demons in medieval art. I wouldn't be surprised if that's what she was thinking of when she's writing Goblin Market. So they're increasingly kind of viewed as more villainous perhaps than other fairies even as other fairies are viewed as like increasingly kind of like nice and sweet like in the in the flowers and fantasties those little fairies and so tolkien gets a hold of the term goblin at least in the hobbit and my basic understanding is this and it probably needs a lot of correction and nuance as i said before like elf or dwarf goblin's a word that until the time of tolkien at least for a while in english it's recognized as one of many specific more or less regional names for the universal idea that there are funny little creatures and or spirits living among us. On the basis of this recognition of similarity between various local legends, the names such as goblin, kobold, dwarf, gnome, elf, fairy, puck, puka, etc. become like kind of interchangeable. But what Tolkien does is think about the way, based I'm assuming on etymology, that these sorts of creatures could be distinguished from each other, right? So rather than viewing them as all as synonyms, he's saying, okay, I'm going to take these words seriously as betokening something that is actually different. Yes, we we do have different languages and things like that, but a goblin is not the same thing as an elf, is not the same thing as a dwarf, despite the fact that maybe they have some similarities in, in, in certain ways. So he's viewing these as, you know, being able to be distinguished from each other on the basis of their names and also prominent stories in the 19th century as well as medieval tales. So where before the 
tendency was centrifugal, people sort of identifying, you call them kobolds, we call them goblins. For Tolkien, it becomes more centripetal. I think I'm using centrifugal and centripetal correctly, where he's more interested in saying, no, 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 a kobold is different from a goblin because these are different words, right? So let's find out the particular kinds of creatures that they, you know, or an elf is different from a dwarf because these are different words. So let's figure out, rather than being a common phenomenon, what separate creatures these names refer to. So he's taking the words themselves really seriously rather than doing the kind of thing that like most of Europe tended to do, right, where they're meeting people from other countries and saying, oh yeah, you worship this god who's really good with language named Mercury. We have one too, but we call him Woden, right? And, and that's, by the way, why we have days of the week that correspond with the Latin days of the week, Miraculous versus Wednesday, right? Yeah, rather than doing that, he's kind of saying, no, 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 Wednesday and Miraculous, they are very different things, right? Because they refer to very different types of people. Rather than lumping it all together, he's beginning to divide a little bit and say, okay, so what exactly is a goblin? What exactly is, you know, a dwarf? What exactly is an elf? And, and, and distinguishing them from each other. What's your take on them? Am I completely ridiculously wrong there? What do you think? This makes perfect sense to me, returning to his ideas about how language and myth are related. So it's setting the record straight. When you don't think of mythology as some negative effect of language change, but instead you think of language kind of adjusting to meet our beliefs and what things that we perceive in the world and how we try to make sense of it. And then we further language in that way by further abstracting it and crystallizing it and making it so that it basically matches up with what we observe. He basically does the most you can do in terms of setting apart and differentiating something that's not real, but that it's very real in our minds and historically is real in terms of how different they are and how the different facts play out between Woden and Mercury. You know, they're not from the same culture. He wants to set the record straight. So like, for instance, talking about Shakespeare again, Tolkien lament what Shakespeare, quote unquote, did to fairies, <laughs> you know, and whether you agree with that or not, he says he made them diminutive. They're supposed to have some kind of power. So he returns them to this state of solemnity and danger and beauty. And I think he does this with all of his different creatures where he takes them, actually sets them apart and tries as much as he can to return to the etymology and follow it where it leads rather than necessarily maybe where societally or culturally the creature has changed. So for instance, at some point we should definitely talk about, you know, the change from, I think they were goblins in The Hobbit to more orcs in The Lord of the Rings. Yep. So, yep. you know, where that change comes from. I think it's just this realization of, wow, I could actually really bring this back the way it ought to be. Based on, of course, his own perception that studying Indo-European languages is amazing. So I should like be 
truthful to it as much as possible. That's super cool. As far as potential problems with kind of what I what I laid out, one quibble I might have with with what I sort of said before is that McDonald does begin to differentiate goblins from fairies anyway, right? At the beginning, there's there's this, in some editions of The Princess and the Goblin, not all editions, there's this little editor's note in italics. Please remember, this is not a fairy tale. This is a goblin tale. It's not strictly a synonym there. And then Shakespeare as well, again, he's conflating classical and English folklore, but he's also drawing a distinction between, again, the high Greco-Roman classical fairies and the low, capering, goofy, English low-class fairies. Yeah, why don't we talk about Tolkien's evolution regarding goblins? Obviously, Tolkien is very influential in The Hobbit in the way that we use the word goblin now, right? And you have the whole goblinizance of the 80s, right? Which I think you could probably trace back to Tolkien or at least to Dungeons and Dragons, which is influenced by Tolkien. But he moves away from the term goblin in The Lord of the Rings, and he increasingly is using orc instead. I mean, it's really only the hobbits, it seems like, that call them goblins. Although, do the dwarves? Maybe just nobody knows what they call them because they have their own weirdo language. I don't recall. I know that it makes perfect sense for the hobbits to still kind of call them goblins if you think about the hobbits being the sort of English translation uh, (laughs) of the whole Lord of the Rings story. Yeah, because they're essentially Victorians in their diminutive little lives, entering into the great big world of of Middle Earth as characterized by medieval thought as it is and and ancient thought as well. So yeah, in their language, they have lots of Frenchified words like goblin, but in the wider world, the common term for these sorts of people is orc, right? Which is derived from this sort of, uh, I mean, I I think, right? It's uh, from the list in Beowulf, right? When he's talking about Orkneas and and nobody quite knows what those are. So the passage that you're referring to from Beowulf, the Orkneas are listed, they're collocated (laughs) alongside Aotinus, which means giants, and Yulfa, which means elves. And I believe there's a footnote in Kleber where he tries to sort of think about Orkneas as a plural compound of orc, which is a byproduct of Latin orcus, which is a word for the underworld or death. And this pre-kind of suffix ne, which would have meant corpse. So to think about it as kind of like death corpses or hell corpses, something like that. Zombies, kind of. Although that's not exactly what the orcs are in. I mean, they're comparable in a lot of ways, right? Because they're they're not very well differentiated. They don't really have personality. Well, they do have personalities in Tolkien, but they're all terrible personalities. Increasingly, Tolkien is adopting this term orc until he's almost entirely using that. Do you know why he does that? Why does he decide no more goblins? I'm just going to say orcs in Lord of the Rings and henceforth in my mythos. In in this time period, people kind of know what a goblin is, but people don't know what orcs are. So maybe it's a way to kind of remake the creature so that he can have a creature that is basically oopsie (laughs) from, you know, elves, Um, a 
poorly made elf. Yeah, well, that's fascinating to me, too, in light of what we've been talking about so far, right? That the Victorians and the people before the Victorians do not very cleanly differentiate elf from goblin, from fairy, and Tolkien is doing that. But he's also relating orcs and therefore goblins to elves and therefore fairies again, that they are bent elves, right? That they are elves who have been twisted. Um, so they, there is actually a relationship. They're not completely separate. They've just been corrupted, which is kind of cool. It's a cool way for his mythology to reflect sort of what was going on with these words before his mythology came along. I have a couple of theories. One is that he's growing increasingly anxious to distance himself from George MacDonald, as we've seen with, uh, with Smith of Wooden Major, to say MacDonald wasn't a terrorist huge influence on him. Tolkien is his own guy, but MacDonald certainly was an influence on him. Two, he doesn't like French that much. And so finding a word like orc instead of, you know, the Anglo-Norman goblin seems to fit the bill. Goblin being used so frequently by Victorians possibly caused it to be like the word fairy, too loaded down with baggage of like, oh, these are funny little men and they do funny little things, you know, which the word doesn't really lose after Tolkien either. Like in the, I mean, it'd be interesting to see if it would have lost it more if he'd written goblin instead of orc throughout Lord of the Rings, right? If we would increasingly view goblins as orcs the way we view elves as Tolkien elves rather than and, you know, funny little men playing tricks. So you also mentioned this word puka, and I think we found a connection with the Pukel men in Middle-earth. Does that bear out the connection that we made? Yeah, I think it does. But as we were looking at these words, the Pukelmen, and these are the watchstones that are these ancient carved statues that look like big squatting human forms with short arms and big bellies. And if that's not goblin-like, like I don't know what is. By the time we read about them in the main books or see them in the movies, they're extremely eroded. Like you can basically just see eye sockets in the faces. So it's really interesting then that these Pukelmen look so goblin-like and that Tolkien decided to use the word puka as mm. if, again, like, you know, he's returning to true Germanic yeah. terminology for all of his different things in his world. Yeah, it's interesting that he wouldn't use puka, even cob right? When you're talking about the orcs, rather than just go straight to, I'm going to make up my own word for these guys based on a word in, in Beowulf that nobody knows what it means. It's fascinating. All right, so Tolkien's time has come and gone. He was obviously extraordinarily important in the way that we think about fantasy critters, right? And the kind of classifications that we can do now are a lot of times much more like a philologist's classification of words, right? Rather than making one thing interchangeable with another. But that that being said, in our use of the word goblin now, are we more like the Victorians still? Or are we more sort of disciplined saying like, oh, goblin, it only refers to this one sort of thing and not these other things? I think now synonyms still work, but they work in different 
boxes. So I don't think quite as many creatures can mean goblin anymore. Like you couldn't substitute gnome for goblin anymore because modern readers and players of games and things like that, like they're completely different creatures, not even in the same category other than like height, <laughs> maybe. Um, Although gnomes, I think, are even more diminutive than goblins in the modern conception. Like for in Dungeons and Dragons, for instance, a gnome is a default race that you can play as, while goblins are naturally evil enemies. You'd have to basically craft your own stats and everything to try to play oh, a goblin. That's a really clear cut oh i'll be a gnome but I, I won't be a goblin they're evil and dungeons and dragons are gnomes at all like garden gnomes do they look like that or like david the gnome from the nickelodeon show in the in the 80s talking about so a little bit they can be because I, I mean you can kind of just design whatever you want they look a little bit more like david the gnome than like the garden gnomes like they're not okay. all bearded the dwarves actually are more likely to be like everybody has a beard kind of thing of course of um, course but they are more or less associated with forests like they're very nature oriented but yeah they're more in touch with nature they're neutral creatures just in general, like they're too small to get in somebody's way enough to like interfere with somebody else's business, but they're not going to be like evilly maligned, whereas Goblin is default neutral evil. We're still living with the unfair legacy that Tolkien has uh, had on poor goblins who are usually viewed as, as evil. And again, like kind of following Christina Rossetti and George MacDonald, who view goblins as primarily malevolent. So I just want to think about some other goblins in the 20th and 21st century uh, sort of following Tolkien and where we see them popping up in pop culture. One thing that really stood out to me, uh, because I've just been reading through, as of like a few months ago, I'd been reading through some of the early Spider-Man comics. Of course, you know, the Green Goblin. <laughs> Can Spider-Man come out to play? His whole sort of theme has to do with Halloween, more or less. So he's got like the pumpkins and, and everything else, right? So so yeah, these, these sort of like sinister associations with Goblin and almost supernatural, right? Which is probably not directly influenced by Tolkien or even MacDonald, but other ideas floating around the word Goblin. But yeah, you've got the, the Green Goblin, the Hobgoblin. Yeah, that was, that was the main thing I thought of, but I'm sure I can think of many others. What were some of the um, other 20th century, 21st century Goblins? that you thought of, Cora. The thing that's interesting to me about the way that goblins are used in modern media is how they are used as sort of quote-unquote people groups to be scapegoated in stories and how this sort of reflects bad things that groups of humans have done to other groups of humans. For instance, this year there was a lot of controversy with a new game that was announced for Harry Potter fans called Hogwarts Legacy. The, the thing that was troubling about this game was that the antagonists in this game are goblins. 
who are the same race of creatures who operate the banking system. And they are staging a big goblin rebellion. So in the books and movies, they're described slash portrayed in ways that are kind of unavoidably anti-Semitic, stereotypical, you know. And when I read about goblins and even older fairy tales, I actually actively think about this, or at least try to challenge myself to think about it. You know, how are goblins being used and being stereotyped in a way that's sort of making it okay to basically, you know, destroy their civilization or whatever. And the way it mirrors the way humans pick and choose the parts of other people to love and hate and what to make grotesque. And then that way they can basically scapegoat each other. And so I I haven't read Terry Pratchett's Discworld series. I really want to. It's just, yeah, you, you know, it's to. one of those things. There are so many, it's hard to like get started. Mm-hmm. But I know, and maybe if you have read it already, you can inform, fill me in more on this. But it seems like he plays around with the humanity of goblins and how they are used, enslaved, how their basically status is almost a person, but not really is exploited because they're, quote, you know, not really people. I'm interested in this and how they're used in modern media in that way. And also, what connections there might be between how McDonald talks about goblins, their features, what they're attracted to or not attracted to. He also talks about Irene's behavior as a princess, how she should act, how she's not a vulgar or, you know, plain girl. And there are some genetic themes, <laughs> I think, to contend with a little bit, although I haven't finished it, so I can't say that for sure. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot to think about there for for Princess and the Goblin, I definitely think that's worth discussing. The interesting thing to me about McDonald is that he's a universalist. So in the end, I remember reading Lilith and even Lilith and even the devil ultimately shall be redeemed in McDonald's sort of worldview. So I'm still sort of trying to piece together because both the Princess and the Goblin and the Princess and Curdy, there are people like the Goblins and, and then other people as well who are losing their humanity in the Princess and Curdy that presumably within McDonald's framework eventually gain it back or eventually are saved somehow. But yeah, it's interesting too where the goblins are people in mcdonald right they they are a branch of humanity that because they didn't like paying taxes or something else like that have gone underground literally become deformed lost their ability to have toes and and things like that it's really interesting i don't know that i'm troubled by it so much as interested in the way that it is exploring the way humanity looks at itself right because ultimately these are fictional groups of people and we don't need to superimpose them on like actual groups of people right because they're i would never want to say another human being is a goblin right or or suggest that somehow like different groups of sentient beings in fantasy can somehow easily stand in for different groups of like homo sapiens but it does get at kind of the way that we view each other both our desire to scapegoat others and also our desire desire for others who are different from us, but in some ways that, that can be in sympathy with us, right? And that's not the goblins so much, but it is like these other sorts of, you know, like the elves, especially in Tolkien's world, who are fundamentally different from humans, but they're also treasured by humans for, for that. They are people who are created by God in a fundamentally different way. And, and it gets at this sort of feeling of loss in the 
human heart, right? That there are other sorts of beings with whom we've lost fellowship and that we, you know, that we desire. Obviously, again, when we start sort of characterizing non-human groups of people in ways that we've tended to characterize other human groups of people, it opens a Pandora's box. And I think Terry Pratchett is a great resource for exploring that because he is fundamentally a humorist and fundamentally a satirist. So he is absolutely taking advantage of that sort of slippage, right, to explore social problems and uh, and things like that. So it's definitely a fun group of books. I haven't read all of them either. There are too many of them, but I've read some of them and they're great. talked a little bit about society and we've talked a little bit about in mcdonald and in, in the princess and the goblin you have an underground society functioning in an alternative way right it's a society that sort of caters to vices i thought it'd be interesting just to kind of end thinking about sort of alternative societies especially like underground because that also often the, these are not just figures sort of on the periphery of our society but they have their own societies very often right and they have their own sorts of worlds in difficult to access parts of the earth or the other world or whatever else, right? So we've got stories dating from pretty early on, medieval stories, pre-medieval stories, I'm sure, but the medieval ones are the ones I'm most familiar with that have a lot of these creatures, whether they're called fairies, whether they're called elves, whether they're called dwarves, whether they're called goblins, which they're not in, in the instances I'm thinking of, but it's implied, it's very strongly implied that they live underground. So you've got, for example, the green children of Woolpit in Suffolk in the 12th century. And this is recorded by Ralph of Cogsall, who's a historian. People in Suffolk in Woolpit come across two green kids who are speaking in gibberish and who don't want to eat any human food. They'll only eat green beans grown from the ground. And they say they come from a land called St. Martin, which has no sun, or at least is like a twilight land. Their sky looks the way the sky looks just before dawn, just after twilight. Eventually, according to Ralph, they do start eating human food. They lose the green color of their of their skin. They're baptized. The boy ends up dying, but the girl is christened Agnes. Uh, she grows up. She marries somebody. She just kind of becomes a part of local Suffolk history. When asked about their land, they say, the sun does not rise upon our countrymen. Our land is little cheered by its beams. We are contented with that twilight, which among you precedes the sunrise or follows the sunset. Moreover, a certain luminous country is seen not far distant from ours and divided from it by a very considerable river, which is just fascinating. In the 12th century also, there's Gerald of Wales's story, Journey Through Wales, about this priest named Elidorus who tells Gerald a story. As a kid, he's ditching school and hiding under a riverbank to not be caught as a truant. And two little men come up to him and they say, hey, follow us. Come to our land of delights, right? So he follows them through this sort of underground realm and comes to this place where you never quite see the sun. Uh, the sky looks either very cloudy or very, very dark. 
The people there all have shoulder-length blonde hair. Um, they practice virtue, but not religion. They get really annoyed when you lie. They don't eat meat. They eat milk with saffron. And they look down on Elidurus's people for being too ambitious, caring too much about riches and lying. So Elidurus tries to tell his mother, hey, I've been to this secret land of delights. And his mother's like, oh yeah, we'll prove it. Get me something to, to sell or to wear up here. And so he goes down and steals a golden ball from them, drops it. Little people scurry out, take the golden ball away and he's never able to go back to the land of delights again. So yeah, those are my two medieval examples. I bet we could think of a ton more from folklore, especially where you encounter, you know, the little people dancing inside a fairy mound. But um, yeah, do any come to mind for you of like kind of underground folk? What I'm thinking of, I guess, is like the idea that among these different creatures, underground living can be preferred or even, you know, their sort of natural state in our apocalyptic literature and in some stories. It's like, oh yeah, humanity was driven underground ground because there was something worse above ground. But in the case of these other creatures, on the one hand, I think you could maybe catastrophize and say, oh, humanity is the thing <laughs> above ground that to get away from. But I think on the other hand, too, it's like, well, I mean, they've chosen it. It's like the land of delights. It's better down here. So it's yeah. just interesting, like comparing that with our own sort of ideas about what it would take to actually have to live underground. Yeah, there's a great quote, too, about uh, I think it's in I think it's in British goblins, but but maybe I'm misremembering about dwarves, uh, right? And it's like God saw the mountains, and He's like, "Oh man, these things are so great, and they have so much. There's so much inside. I just need a type of people to inhabit these, right? So so basically, like, let's make some dwarves to live here. And dwarves like to be underground. Which, by the way, if you want to read a really great Discworld book about the dwarves, you should definitely read The Fifth Elephant. It's the first one that I read, and I think it's the funniest, but it's about the dwarves. Uh, the the female dwarf who serves with the Ankh-Morpork police office, I think she I think she wants to shave her beard, and so she gets a lot of flack from her very orthodox dwarven relatives or something like that about, how could you do that? You know, wear lipstick, and so that's not what dwarves do. You know, anyway, it's, it's very fun. But yeah, under ground civilizations are fascinating maybe it's it just begins and ends with the fact that it's a really cool interesting idea as much as like probably none of us would want to live indefinitely underground and never see the sun right of course there's c.s lewis's silver chair where you have these little goblin-like people who uh, are enslaved by the green witch yeah really just too many instances to to count of of people living and and having civilizations underground whether they're goblins or whether they're dwarves or whether there's something else or like you know i mean the upside down that's a form of this right in, in stranger things yeah it's it's essentially an underground copy of the world up above final question if you were making a film of the princess and the goblin what goblin themed movie would you be most inspired by so that's the first part of the question and the second part is would you use actors use muppets or animatronics or use cgi or cartoons when you were doing the goblins 
The movie that I would be the most inspired by is not actually based on the movie itself. It's based on the book series that the movie is based on. The Spiderwick Chronicles. I don't know, just the way that it approaches strange creatures. Um, I always really liked the illustrations. It kind of takes a more recording approach in terms of like, oh, wow, this is really scary, but it's also kind of cool and it's intricately detailed. And I don't know, I just, I really like the vibe and the colors. So I would probably be inspired by that because goblins evoke the uncanny so much right they're like humans but not humans i'd actually go for a niche kind of silly genre that i've been seeing online where you'll live act out the scene and then you'll use a paint and track computer program that essentially lets you design a character over your live actors and oh. then have that character model move with your live actor as they perform so it's not quite like cgi it's not like it's 3d generated but it's just this 2d character it's like it's like rotoscoping yes exactly yeah 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 that's the proper term for it (laughs) i didn't know i didn't know we could do that now with with programs that's uh that's fun it would be silly and amateur but i think it's kind of perfect vibe wise for an adaptation yeah so listeners send us your reenacted rotoscope scenes from the princess and the goblin please. Uh, Please. I would love that so much. (laughs) Yeah. I think I would probably be most inspired by uh, Labyrinth. The world of Labyrinth. All the stuff that Jim Henson was doing in in the eighties. And I I think we kind of had our goblinizance mainly because of Jim Henson, you know, whether in Labyrinth, I mean, Star Wars, essentially like the little guy that sits on somebody's shoulder and laughs. That's a goblin, right? When 900 years old, you reach, look as good. You are not. (laughs) All these little critters that he made funny and also mischievous and also kind of scary. He did goblins very, very well. There's also a series called Jim Henson's The Storyteller. The best place by the fire was kept for The Storyteller. Used a combination of just kind of great storytelling and really creative practical effects with some puppetry. It's just fantastic. Anything else you wanted to bring up before we say goodbye? This has been very, very fun to have an excuse to research goblins for a day (laughs) and then talk about it. So thank you so much for having me on. Cora, thank you so much for joining us. This was so much fun. And listeners, thank you all again. We'll be back with some more Princess and the Goblin covering the, the actual book. But we hope you enjoyed this little detour into historical linguistics with Cora Burton. Thanks again, and I'll see you all next time. Encounter full of joy, unscheduled on the decent fan, with here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan. <laughs>